Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tina Janolu. I studied neuroscience and then bioengineering, graduating with a PhD from ETH Zurich in Switzerland. Currently, I'm working in the diagnostics industry. Today, I have with me Agustin Fuentes to talk about race, monogamy, and other lies they told you, the second edition. Um, Agustin is a primatologist and biological anthropologist. He graduated from University of California, Berkeley, with a BA in anthropology and zoology, as well as an MA and PhD in anthropology. He has since been researching fields of biological anthropology and primatology, exploring the entanglement of biological systems with the social and cultural dimensions. He, be- he began his academic career at Central Washington University and most recently served at the University of Notre Dame in a number of different roles, including director of the Institute for Scholarship in the Liberal Arts, as well as professor and chair of, de- of the Department of Anthropology. Since last Uh, Since fall 2020, he serves as professor in the Department of Anthropology at Princeton University. In the second edition of Race, Monogamy and Other Lies, they told you, Augustine covers three pervasive and pernicious myths about human behavior. That humans are divided into biological races, humans are naturally aggressive, and men and women are wholly different in behavior, desires, and wiring. Augustine tackles misconceptions about what race, aggression, and sex really means for humans and incorporates an accessible understanding of culture, genetics, and evolution that requires us to dispose of notions of nature or nurture. Thank you, uh, Augustine, for joining us today. Tina, thanks so much for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here. So... um, Let's uh, maybe first start with, so this is the second edition of the book. What has been going on in the past 10 years that prompted you that we need a second edition for this book? What hasn't been going on the last 10 years? Uh, Look, the book is about understanding human nature. It's about genetics, biology, sex, gender, war, peace, aggression. The last 10 years are, if they're basically nothing but those things all the time. So so I think it's important. I think what really stimulated me to to, um, to write a second edition is that 
we're in an incredibly rich and amazing time of technological and theoretical advances in science practice and practic uh, practitioners. So we're seeing who's doing science is changing or expanding and the capacity to do more and more detailed science and to develop more and more sort of copious volumes of data. So uh, I, I think things have changed a lot. And in particular, in regards to human biology, um, from the genomic level to the organismal level, in regards to our understanding of patterns and processes of, of aggression and violence, and in our understanding of what human variation looks like and why people misuse that in, in horrific racist ways, the last decade has seen explosions in all of these areas. At the same time, I think we've seen regressions or more ignorance about race, aggression, and sex than almost ever before. So it's the perfect moment to take what I thought was a really good book in 2012. It took me about six years to, to, to really pull it together then. Um, and to just really update it, engage it, revise it pretty extensively for the current moment. So 2022 uh, was a moment when we need a lot more information better crafted arguments and more access than we did in 2012. And um, also looking at the at the research, so you actually pointed out very well, on the one hand, there's an explosion in, in, the, re in the research with regards to understanding these um, various aspects of what we call human nature. <laughs> and at the, at the same time, there's, let's say, a deafness to it, right? You also mentioned because there's basically in the culture itself. So if, if I may say, then there's a regression. Um, so just very briefly, why, why, what do you think is happening here? Well, I mean, we all are living through it right now. Um, the, the world, right? Uh, uh, the planet, many different nations, many different societies are undergoing incredible duress, incredible stress. And in these times of stress, we see different kinds of movement towards fascism or totalitarianism, social control, strife, because the inequality and inequity is so huge, anger, blaming of others, um, fear, um, insecurity, All of those things come together and create a very, I don't know, let's say a perfect condition for lies, manipulation, and fear to really take over people's lives. Um, and so we're seeing that, I think. I think we're seeing uh, a, a doubling down on a misuse of information about human biology to control, to scare, and to hurt other people. And the theme of, for example, not um, uh, believing the science or be like not believing in the scientists and kind of looking for easier explanations, this is actually not something new, right? No, so just no. <laughs> no it's, it's very old. But, but here we have, a two, we have two, maybe even three problems. First of all, there's a strong anti-science sort of reality right now. And that's old. People are nervous about... And, and, and there's a good reason, right? In, in, in some ways, a lot of science is very complicated. But another good reason to be nervous of the science is throughout the last couple centuries, science and scientists have misused information about humans, lied about humans to harm, to control for racist, sexist, colonialist perspectives. So, so a lot of people mistrust scientists, not because of science, but because of the political and historical realities around a lot of science. And the third thing, is that there are active scientists still doing this misuse. There are people with advanced degrees who believe strongly that white, black, and Asian are different kinds of humans, that 
men and women have very specific 100% different realities and that at at the heart of us we are aggressive violent creatures and they're going to present information in a way that makes you believe that so i think all the three of those things are happening right now and and the real challenge is how do we take all of this incredible knowledge data and analyses which are out there which are great i mean this is a this is an incredible moment in science right it, even in spite of something horrible like the covid pandemic our understanding of for example how to un, to model um, viral sequence evolution. I mean, that it's it's expanded. Our our understanding of uh, human physiology is changing. So there's all this great information. But how do we take that from the research labs, the universities, the private funded uh, you know pharmaceutical companies? How do we take all that knowledge and provide it to the world in a way that's accessible and understandable? And 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 I know this book is difficult in some ways because there's a lot of notes and a lot of information, but but I, I'm, I'm hoping I at least made a little bit of inroads in making it accessible to people. Yeah, I would definitely say also I'm familiar with more biological aspects of like of scientific, you know, writing and so on. But I found it actually it, it should be uh, understandable. And about that, actually, about biology and what we have been just discussing, this comes again and again also in the book. Like, um, so, for example, genetics. So this is something that has really settled in the culture. So I really liked you at the beginning. It was one of the tool part of the toolbox to you know understand all these all these myths and so on. It's quite funny that genetics, so it's in the genes and it's hereditary. This really stuck in the culture and everything that came after. So they're also even in research or even in scientific education. This is taught as, for example, central dogma of molecular biology. So we kind of admit it, right, that it's a gene, then a protein, then there's a phenotype and so on. And however, the reality is much more complicated than that. And maybe you can talk a little bit about this. There's epigenetics, there are other aspects, but there's also this resistance to go for a very simple uh, explanation, which genetics and the central dogma type of genetics and then you know ignoring all the research and by now quite established research on other other things that play there well the, the funniest thing here is that there is a truism right there is a fact in the world um and all biologists especially all geneticists know this and that fact is genes do nothing by themselves right now that that's not a surprising statement I mean, that that statement is almost so like basic, it's meaningless, but it's so important because the way we talk about genes and genetic sequences in the public, but really genes, because the public doesn't think of genetic sequences, they think of this thing called the gene. And also in the academy is as if there were this thing in the human body that produces behaviors and ideologies and patterns. And that never happens, even in the most sort of clear cut, like mistake gene diseases. So when you have a, a mutation or a deletion that causes a, cas a, a malproduction that has a molecular you know, cascade, even in those cases, it's almost never that there's just one change and one outcome in a 100% consistent. It, it does happen, but it's very rare. So, so my point with that whole genetics, I had to put in, that's a whole new chapter. That genetics chapter is a whole new chapter because we got to the point where the misconnection between the data and analyses and understanding of genomics as processes and the public and many ac academics idea about what genes are is so huge that I'd say, okay, look, here's what, what we know in a very simple way. And this is not to say that DNA, that genes are not really important. They're central to everything. Everything has some genetic connection to it, but not in a line, 
right? Not usually directly causal. And it's always dependent upon all these other contexts and relationships. So, so when I say a gene does nothing by itself, that's actually really important. And we should start teaching genetics that way, but that's not what we do. No, not at all. We stopped that central dogma about being critical. And then yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, and the, that's, power, that's, the power is so important because people think, oh, well, genes, like, you know, someone spits in a tube, pays 150 US dollars and, and, and expects to be told who they are. Right. Any geneticist knows your genes don't tell you who you are. They tell you some very important information, but they can't tell you. They cannot tell you whether you're Swiss. Right. Or, uh, you know, Spanish or, you know, Moroccan or you know, those are nationalities and histories and societies and associated with languages in particular traditions and practices. So those things are not only related to genetics. And that theme also, again, is a lot, um, is quite present, like basically what makes a human is neither fully, you know, culture or fully biology. So it's what you call um, a nature nurtural. Yeah, yeah, I know. I got in trouble because I invented a word, but I couldn't, I couldn't, I, it, that came from, you know, 20 years of teaching this topic by 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 the time i published the first version of this book i'd started using nature neutral because i was just so frustrated i would say it's not nature or nurture it's not nature and nurture because the two don't exist without each other right that that's it's always nature neutral um so people just shake their heads when i say that but but the point is valid right um we could make up a new term but i just i want people to recognize that you know from for all of human existence right the individual existence and throughout human evolutionary history, this dynamic, this biocultural dynamic, this dynamic between bodies and histories and societies and other animals, you know, all of that dynamic is always ongoing. And to pull stuff apart, yeah, it, I think it harms our ability to, to get a big picture understanding. And I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense when you think about it, but I guess it, it's difficult because it doesn't stick as the easy, easy answer. Like there, it's a constant back and forth, constant interplay. And again and again, this comes in the book that like certain things and especially like evolution also you take in this context. So you maybe we could actually from here really um, uh, go in that direction and maybe you can unpack a little bit. I really also enjoyed that. Uh, I have to say the uh, myths about evolution because like the genes and genetics, this is also one thing. Also, it, it penetrated into the into the language that, you know, you talk about evolution of things. So what do we misunderstand about about evolution? So I think that the, the biggest misunderstanding about evolution is that everything is showing up the way it is for that purpose, right? This whole idea that whatever we have was evolved that way. So I use uh, 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 um, the, the, you know, the book Candide, uh, Voltaire's uh, little novelette Candide, for an example, because there's a philosopher in there named Pangloss who always says everything is for the best, right? So we, we evolve basically in, in a nutshell we have two legs, we wear pants. And people tend to think, oh, perfect. We perfectly adapted to wearing pants, right? Wearing pants has nothing to do with evolving two legs. It has everything to do with us covering ourselves and having two legs and so building the culture to map to those two legs. What I'm trying to get at here is people think evolution is very goal-directed and targeting, right? So everything happens for a reason. And, and the truth is everything doesn't happen for a reason. Evolution is very, very messy. Some things we can model and understand, 
Um, other things have so much complex histories that they've shown up for a variety of reasons. Now, that's not a great explanation. That's very confusing. So I'd rather put it this way. Evolution is change over time. How things change over time, there are a bunch of different processes. There's natural selection, there's gene flow, there's genetic drift, there's niche construction, there's developmental plasticities. We know how things change over time, and we have models for how those processes shape life, uh, including our own. Um, and I think that's very important. So, so evolution is this really dynamic, not always goal-directed, messy, beautiful, wondrous reality that has produced the, the, the plethora of life. And it's ongoing right now, right? We are all uh, humans are, have been evolving, are evolving, and will continue to evolve. The second big problem with evolution is people think we come from monkeys, right? That, that, I don't know, you know, that's really all of it. People are like, oh, humans, you know, you have a monkey, then you have sort of a chimpanzee looking, then you have sort of a something between a chimpanzee and a human, then a human. That's, to, that's not the way it works, right? I mean, anything that's around living today is equally evolved. What's amazing about evolution is that it tells us about the history of life and how we relate to other parts of life. And so evolution is about continuities, what we share with all other life especially those branches close to us, like monkeys and chimpanzees. It's also about the discontinuities, what is distinctive about each lineage, right? And so uh, that's, that's what evolution is. And so what I try to do laying out is just talk about how does evolution work? What is it? And then knowing that, we can then talk about human biology, human history, and human futures uh, with a little bit more understanding. Yeah, and it fits also very well when you when you explore the myths because like some of them also arise from the fact that the way how the cultural um, like how the society is organized culturally due to politics and and different powers at play, uh, then you, people tend to think if you know is this made for purpose type of thing. Oh, like then the explanation is easy. It's like this because you know biologically they're this way. So. And let me give you a, a good example that's in there all the time. If you look at, let us say, here in the United States, same in in, uh, in uh, Switzerland and, and in many places, uh, if you look at most of, although it's been a little different in Switzerland, but if you look at the vast majority of presidents or heads of the top corporations, um, they're one particular kind of person or they look in a particular way, right? What we would call a, a white older man. Um, and so many people have argued, well, Look, the majority of presidents or prime ministers, the majority of business owners uh, of major corporations are, are older white men. That means there must be something about being a white older man, and it's evolutionarily so they're smarter, they're more capable. And that's when you step back and talk about this nature neutral. Well, you know, what cultural, historical, political, and economic realities have shaped that? And are there really differences? Can you take a, a, a 60-year-old man and a 60-year-old woman and say, here are brain differences that make one better at being a business leader and the other better at being a school teacher? No, no, they're not. So that's where biology comes in into play here. It, it tackles and disrupts the myths that we think explain the world, but then opens the door to other explanations, which are just much more complicated. Well, I mean, when we also talked earlier about um, uh, the, you know, scientists and um, how, like they also have opinions, right? So they do science and they do science also from a personal lens. I think sometimes this is also what, what we miss a little bit. And at the same time, in the past years, I see like there is more diversity in, in scientists, which basically gives us this many, many different diverse lenses, which is definitely enriching 
um, what we also can find out. Because if you have had a different experience, I think there was an anecdote also in the book, like two people looking at the same thing, especially for observational sciences. You'll see, you'll focus on different things, you'll see different things. So also kind of having a society kind of trying to move towards giving everybody opportunities, everybody a chance to, you know, for example, it's also already a privilege to have the chance to, you know, um, devote your life to science. This actually is not so easy to do for um, many facets of the society, right? So... It, yeah, so this, I mean, that's great. So you bring those things up. A, a couple of things I think very important. I mean, we know, and there's tons of data, and, and I, I cite a lot of it, but there's tons of data that show that more diverse more inclusive research teams produce, on average, better uh, outcomes because of the diversity of experience and perspective. So th there's some really good methodologically important stuff. But but really important, I like what you said right there, is that, uh, you know, scientists, right, are humans. So science is practiced by humans. That means it has biases and problems, stuff like that. And that's why I opened the book by giving a little ethnographic, uh, you know, autobiographical narrative of myself. And it's funny because some people are like, well, that's very arrogant. You open the book, I talk about yourself. And and the reason I do that is because I want the reader to know who I am. What are my biases? I'm very clear about my biases. Of course, I'm biased. I, I try my best to present data and information, but of course, I'm biased. So I want the reader to know who I am, where I'm from, where my schooling's been, what my experiences are in the world, to shape sort of who I am. So what they read, they're, uh, you know, I don't care if they believe me or not. That's beside the point. I want them to understand what I'm saying. And I provide all the references and, and a little bit at the end of how to go find information for themselves. I don't want people to believe me. I want people to understand me, right? And understand this information and do with it what they will. Um, so I think that's really important. And, and something that really I did intentionally with the second version, which is something I think is very important in the practice of science. And that is, I thought a lot. So I included, I think it was like 130 new citations, 150 new citations, studies, and, you know, just as updating everything. And a lot of new analysis and review uh, things that I know that I cited, but I intentionally thought, okay, who am I going to cite here? Who, you know, I really, I really thought, you know, I cited what was the most important work for a particular thing. But when I talked about reviews or reflection pieces or different research groups, I, you know, I made some choices to highlight scholars doing the kind of work that I think is more equitable, more just in many ways, and and often much more interesting. Uh, and so, you know, that there's, there's a power in that, right? Getting, saying, look, here are the different types of people, different groups, different processes doing this. Now, one could equally criticize me. I don't cite a lot of race realists. I mean, I, I do cite them because I attack them in the book or show how they're wrong. But, you know, there's a lot of well, yeah, so I guess that's not totally true. I'm going to back up. I actually do cite a lot of people I totally disagree with that I think are wrong because you have to read them and understand what they're arguing, but then I deconstruct their arguments. Um, but but you could say a bias of mine is that um, I uh, am not interested in reading a lot of racist and sexist um, pseudoscience. And so I don't cite a lot of that unless it is to show how it's wrong. Well, I mean, one um, also famous uh, scientist uh, who, like, I think coming, we're coming, and I'm very happy about that, a little bit more questioning is Darwin. <laughs> so, like, he is very beloved all around. But after all, he's also human, right? So, and now... We, he also was living in a particular time and in, in a society uh, with certain norms and, and values. And uh, basically, he 
it, I mean, it's a setback that is, let's also be honest about this, uh, with regards to gender and gender roles and understanding he was looking and basically not seeing. What, yeah, what and that's, you know, on? that's it. I've, I've done that research and, and written on it. And then, uh, as you know, back in 2021, I was asked to write a um, an editorial uh, in, in the big magazine, it's called Science, um, uh, for the 150th anniversary of Descent of Man, the really important book by Darwin, one of the important books. And I wrote a critical uh, editorial pointing out that this is an amazing book, that Darwin is an amazing scholar, he's a genius. Darwin is one of my heroes, absolute heroes. Um, but at the same time, in Descent of Man uh, and, and uh, Sexual Selection, it's a two-volume sort of big book, um, he lays out, especially in chapter seven uh, and the chat on race and then the other chapters on, on sex, he lays out incorrect, clearly racist and sexist perspectives, right? And, and there's two things. He was an English man, right, of a particular time, right, mid-19th uh, century. But he was also a genius scientist. And what's amazing in the other work, the longer work that I've done, I lay this out well, is that you read through his work and you can see the genius scientist and the English man fighting with one another in Darwin's head. Uh, but he always let the English man win um, when it came to race and when it came to sex. And, and that's unfortunate. And so, you know, I like to say at the end of this uh, recent publication, I had it, you know, if Darwin was alive today, he would be writing a very, very, very different book, right? Because the data are just so overwhelming. Um, but that's that's the lesson about the bias in science. That doesn't mean we get rid of Darwin's insights and the important part, but we do recognize that there are many, I would argue, racist and sexist scientists, and then a wide number of the public who are also racist and sexist, who want to use Darwin to say, see, Darwin said that, so it must be true. And that's why we need to read Darwin critically in these ways and, and think through this, recognize his genius, ability as a scientist, but also recognize the biases and constraints uh, that growing up as he did, created in his mind, and to remind us how powerful those biases are. So even though you read his chapter seven on the races of man and descent of man, you read through that and he keeps saying, well, you know, human variations, like none of these things that we say about race are actually biological. They don't seem to be functional. They didn't evolve by selection. It just doesn't make any sense. But, you know, Europeans are better than Africans. And it's just like, well, you just, you just demonstrated that's not true. And yet you come to it at the end. And that's the power of bias in science. And we're just more aware of that now. And so we can't let it go. You can't let it go. This is a new age, right? We, we, we need to call these things out. Yeah, absolutely. And like, as, as we discussed, so basically all the scientists are also human there. We, we can look at it more critically and, you know, also have a little bit of, and this is also something you touch upon, have a little bit level of education to kind of judge a little bit like where this might be coming from. Yeah. yeah. And, and and this is what's so important because what I try to do in this book is lay out the data. Like here are the data. There are, and this is one of the things that the first edition was criticized. I'm sure they'll criticize this is like, there are too many footnotes. There's too many, you know, I try to keep them out of the way and they're just little numbers in there, but you know, Many of the chapters have 140 footnotes or something. And that's because when I say something, I have to say, here are the three, four, five, six papers where this comes from. Here's a few notes on it. And I, I can't not do that because that's the way science should be done. We should be very clear and overt. But also data, the way the world is, has to drive scientific discussion, right? And, and, and I think what's, what's really happening now around issues of human variation, whether it be racial or sexual, um, about human violence and aggression. One of the biggest problems is 
many people, even people working in these areas, don't know what the data actually look like. They don't read across the entire range of things. And so they're making arguments that are very limited. And I, I try in this book to give the broader public and students access to the data so they can do the work for themselves and, and then decide how they want to talk about it. Yeah, I mean, of course, it's just much easier to check one, two things and the, the, like not having the, the comprehensiveness that you provide in the book. So, I mean, thanks for that. So it's really just to pick up and, you know, uh, get, let's say, open the doors to a vast, <laughs> vast uh, scientific world. I would really, really recommend it. So picking it up. So the way I wrote it, too, if you'll notice some of the early chat, I mean, you can read it all as a sequence, but you can also pick up any chapter out of nowhere, just open it up and read different parts or different things. I, I tried to make it, you know, you don't have to go start to finish. You can go backwards and forwards or just pick out chunks. And and that I hope I hope I did. And I tried to fix the writing a little, or fix, improve the writing uh, from the 2012 version, which I think is very good. But I want, I want it as, as much as possible to be readable, right? So much science, so much important science is inaccessible because it's written in these, you know, research formats that you know no one but 12 people can read and that's just not good how how big of a challenge was that so i want to also go through the myths uh, but like before that since we came to this point with regards to scientific communication how big of a challenge like what do you personally experience in trying to um, write a book that communicates very complicated not straightforward with many buts type of science to uh to to put to the public I mean that you know that's thought that I think my entire life has become that uh, 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 attempt. I think I, I tried to do this well because the challenge is to be honest, be truthful, right? Uh, be comprehensive, um, and not be but but be as accessible and as understandable as possible. Because nothing about the human is simple. Anyone who tells you there's a simple explanation for why we do whatever is wrong. I, I'm just going to say that, right? That they're almost never simple explanations, but there are fascinating explanations, right? And so that's why I say, here's the culture toolkit. Here's I, uh, evolution toolkit. Here's the genetics toolkit. I try to make toolkits so that you can then like the minimum, you have a minimum understanding of what you need to do to talk about the rest of this stuff. So I, I'm sure I don't succeed always, but what I wanted to do is make the writing interesting, make the writing um, as accurate as possible, but also invite the reader to sort of think with me, not just listen to what I'm saying. Yeah, I think I think it works. <laughs> so um, let's then maybe I wanted to also briefly dive into these three myths um, that are um, uh, that are covered in the book. So um, the first one uh, is is race, and um, why is race uh, as you know as a basis in in biological you know genes or whatever is a myth, but why is race so important in the cultural context to for us to discuss? Well, I'm writing this book from North America, from the United States, where this is sort of one of the most problematic issues. But it's the same in Europe and it's the same around the world. But but I use a lot of examples from North America because I think it's very specific and the UK as well. Um, so why is, why is the race myth a problem? Well, the myth is that humans are divided up into three or five clusters, right? Black or African, white or European, Asian or yellow, these ridiculous terms, or maybe Native American or red. And, you know, I mean, we're, we're drawing from uh, uh, Linnaeus's classification, right, 300 years ago. So that's the assumption that people have that these categories are biological. 
And that is untrue. There is not a biological category of black or African or European or white or Asian or yellow. Those are not biological categories. Those are social categories. Now, that doesn't mean they're not real, right? For example, if you walk down the street in New York or in London or in Zurich, um, what you look like is going to affect the way people treat you, right? And different societies have different ways of classifying people, but all societies classify people and race is one of those. And so we think of skin color, hair type, different sort of facial features. Um, people think these skin color, hair type, and facial features are biological characteristics, but they think they unify people into these biological groups called race. So race is not biological, but it's still real as a social, political, and historical thing. And, and let me just be very, very clear. Let me use those examples. So skin color, um, dark skin, black skin, incredibly dark skin, occurs in multiple populations of humans across the planet, right? In Africa and South Asia and Southeast Asia and Australasia and Polynesia and South America, right? That skin color does not unify any one group of humans aside from the human species. Um, the same with hair types, the same with eye color, the same with face forms. So it, it turns out that there are no biological characteristics that lump people into black, white, Asian, or those kinds of categories. But again, those categories are real. So how do we explain that? So, so what I try to do in the book is say, okay, look, race is not biology. So let, let's show, we can show how that is. Let's talk about the genetics. Genetics don't get us race. Let's talk about skin color. Let's talk about blood groups. Let's talk about height and weight. Let's just take all the biological facts about humans and just walk through them. And lo and behold, they don't get us race. But then we still have race, right? And racism, bias and, and discrimination against people because of who we think they are or who they get classified as. Why do we have that? And then I talk a little bit about those things, like the racism is real. And so racism is an anti-evolutionary and anti-biological way of seeing the world, right? And that's what I wanted to show. So the myth of race is that it's biological. That's disrupted. I can throw that out, but we still have racism. And so then understanding the social, political, and historic realities of why we still have racism that's the real challenge, right? But there, there's still some misuse of, of science. I mean, there are at least scientists trying to, or like pseudoscience, as you, as you put, trying to kind of find a basis uh, in science. How, how do we fight, fight these type of um, uh, attempts? We, we do the scientific analysis of their positions, right? When, when someone says, no, you know, Africans have lower IQ than Europeans, you're like, break it down. Okay, what are you talking about? What are your categories? What's your IQ measure? What you attack and dismantle the argument, which we can, because biologically, that's an absurd statement. It doesn't work that way. And none of those things mean what they think of it. So, so we can do the academic. So that's on the one hand. And on the other hand, is we yell and we act and we teach and you don't let people get away with that, right? Um, racism is anti-biological and anti-evolutionary. And as a biological scientist who's interested in evolutionary processes, I'm going to sort of do everything I can to make sure that doesn't happen. So should all of us, I think. Yeah. Not, well, exactly. We, not I let mean, anybody get away with non-scientific when, when I teach or lecture, interact with a group, you know, 50, 10-year-olds, they can get this like that. I can teach it to them. They'll get it. 50, 20-year-olds, that's much harder. 50-50-year-olds, it's almost impossible. And so early education is where we need to go. Yeah, that's that's right. And um, thanks a lot for this um, for this brief, uh, you know, summary into 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 the race. This was one of the myths. So how about aggression? So this is also quite quite prevalent. And yeah. <laughs> I'm a bit well, you puzzled know, this, to this why. Hobbesian, 
<laughs> yeah, there's this incredible sort of uh, you know belief that that emerges from you know this the 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 heart of the Western Academy, the entire Western education system and philosophical system, you know, that resonates from some some of the Greek scholars uh, right through you know Hobbes and Kant and I mean this sort of major philosophical heavy hitters uh, in in and then again all guys too, so let's keep that in mind. But uh, um, this idea that at our heart, if you strip away the veneer of culture of civilization. We are beasts. We are violent. That that especially men, right? Um, and and that's actually the idea that humans are naturally violent, especially men. That's a scientific hypothesis. You can test it. Let's look at the data. So we look at the data, and as you see, I'm not going to be able to go over everything. But what's really interesting about the data is it's not that clear. Yes, more men are in prisons. More men kill others. More men. Um, rape and 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 you know murder but most men do none of those things so it's this very interesting complex relationship so so we'll get to the male female thing but right now what i try to do with the aggression is what is violence what is aggression show how complicated that is so to say that humans are very aggressive that actually means nothing what do we mean by aggression there's all these different kinds of aggression to say humans are violent what do we mean by that so i break all that down then i walk through the the sort of neurobiology the hormones the muscles, the bodies that are associated with violence and say, well, what do we actually know about this? And at the end of the day, I can clearly and scientifically accurately state humans are not the most violent or the most peaceful. We can be both, but we're not by nature either of those. We have a whole bunch of range of potentials, right? So we can be awfully violent and horrible, but it's not some like adaptive thing. It's not how humans evolved. We did not evolve just to be violent. So as you say, it's basically a range of, you know, uh, many different maybe like emotions or, or states. So like, wouldn't it be funny to say like it's the, the most happiest of, of all? Right. Uh... We, we are, right. Humans are the happiest of all the mammals. Yeah. Well, well, we could be that. We're, we're, also, we're also the strangest, but that, that's a whole other. No, uh, but, but here's my example. See how complicated that, I mean, I tried to do that in a nutshell, but like the aggression thing is really complicated because it's not even a thing. Aggression is actually not a thing. Are you talking about fighting? Are you talking about being mad? Are you talking about hitting someone after they hit you? Are you talking about feeling bad about someone? Are you talking about being angry at your mother or being angry at a friend or being angry at someone you don't know? All of those things are actually different processes and patterns. So, so let's break it down. Let's do the science. What do we know? And at the end of the day, at the end of this chapter, as you notice, I'm like, wow, it's really complicated. Um, but it is nature nurtural. And that's the take home. Right. It, it, it's this dynamic interplay between biology, bodies, cultures, histories and our individual lives. Then it's actually a good segue to to the, to the sex and female and male. So that's definitely biological why more males are in prison. Right. Well, <laughs> so, oh, man, um, actually, no, it's really funny is that there are more more human beings as a percentage of the population. There are more people in the United States in prison than anywhere else in the world. Um, so you could say biologically, people from the United States are much more or much worse. No, it's not true. We have a historical and political system, but let, let's put that aside for a second. So the sex thing, the sex and sex gender, and you'll see, I really did a lot of work updating this. Here's one of the biggest problems. Whenever you say, that it is a myth that he, males and females are totally different kinds of things. People get all upset and they say, oh, you're saying men and women are the same. I am not saying that. I never say it. I say again and again and again through the chapter, we, there is not, all humans are not exactly the same. 
that men and women are different in many, 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 many ways, that males and females are different in many, many, many ways. But the overlaps where the differences and similarities are is actually much more interesting than most people think. And that's the whole argument. It's just like humans are one species, right? Then there's the biology of sex, which is really interesting and dynamic, but it's not totally two different things. It's actually this really interesting overlap and, and, and patterns with really important differences, right? You know, pregnancy, lactation, birthing, certain hormone and physiological profiles, really important for understanding bodies. There's lots of differences, but those don't necessarily always mean what people think they mean, nor do they biologically map the way people think they do. So at the end of the chapter is where the real, up, I mean, throughout his updates, but I have a bunch of new, even terms in there where I talk about the contemporary way of people who study sort of sex and humans talk about sex gender. It's just like nature neutral, right? The biology and the culture are always together. And what's amazing in humans is it's actually quite varied. We have this really interesting sex gender system, this nature neutral system about our bodies and our lives and our families and our you know, sexualities. It's just fascinating uh, relative to most other animals. And that's what I try to get across. So, so the myth that I bust is that men and women are from two different planets or different kinds of things, or I'd say males and females. But the answer to the myth is, wow, it's really complicated. And there are many ways to successfully be human. That's great. That's also a great message. Like we should just embrace more um, diversity and just be happy of, you know, like that people well, are. We should understand. We should understand yeah. what is the diversity. Like what what is the diversity? You know what? What drives me crazy is that in our own lives, we know this. Either it's in ourselves or our friends or our family. Everyone knows. Like just think of the, you know, 25 people you know well. Tell me there's just two kinds of people. Exactly. Now, and as you said, in your in our lives, like you just appreciate to have that. I mean, you have a friend who is, um, you know, I don't know, supportive. You go when you know you're upset, and another one is, you know, like great fun, and you go out and and so on. But like you kind of, as you said, you appreciate it on a you know personal level. But then it's when it comes to explaining things, and I guess this is also this a cultural thing that we have. We want to put things into boxes. Right. Boxes. Yeah, we are not boxy, right? Humans are not in boxes. And so, but the thing I really want to drive home here is understanding these accurate descriptions of human biology and the human variation and where we where humans vary and where they don't is really important for things of health, for things of mental well-being, for you know, relationships. I, I think it's really important. And and it's funny because I've been cr criticized lately. I'm, I'm actually working a lot on this project by arguing that the differences aren't the way we think they are and that there's more variation. People say I'm arguing there's no difference and that I'm disrespecting women or dis I'm like, wait, 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 that, that's not at all what I'm saying, right? And I think the last thing I wanna say, or at least I think very important, is that um, male and female are biological terms, but man and woman, those are human cultural realities. They're all nature neutral, right? And so how we talk about that and how we engage that I think is, really important. So the differences and the biological patterns are so important, but we have to remember that we're all human and that should be where we start. 
That's that's great. Thanks a lot. Um, I mean, my last question is about: Will there be a third edition? And this is a question you can you can take as a little bit of forecasting, a little bit of magic. You know, like this also part of culture. Looking, you know, in the future, do you think we will we will need? Maybe it's a good thing because there will be this boom of new science and that you would want to include that, you know, helps us understand things much better. But at the same time, culturally, will we still be in trouble that, you know, we'll need a third edition to tell us again and again? So here's that's a very you just outlined my 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 uh, what is it? My uh, uh, conundrum here. Right. The difficulty I'm having, because I think it would be great if there was no need for a third edition. Right. If we sort of figured this stuff out really well, I wrote this second edition because the world needs it. I think the world needs it right now. We need a better conversation. We need better understanding. Um, I would love if in 10 years we were in a better place than we are right now. I, just right now, I, I, I'm not that optimistic. I, I hope things get better, but I don't know. So having said that, um, I'll, I'll revisit this in a seven or eight years and see where we are. Um, but uh but but I hope I hope you know I, I want people to uh, read this book and again not agree with me or believe me but understand what we're laying out what what what's out there in the world how do humans vary biologically and what might that mean? Yeah, I also tend to tend to agree with you that I think maybe we'll speak in in ten years huh? again. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Augustine. This has been great, um, and uh, it was great hosting you here. And I, as as I said, I would encourage everyone uh, to pick up the book um, uh, and and take a look. As you said, like even like read a few chapters. Thanks, Ine. Very very enjoyable. Bye bye.